Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Uh, it's Sunday, July 31st. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're going to have a discussion today about pinball and video games and tabletop gaming. But first, what have you been up to, Dennis? Oh, not a whole lot. I uh, went and saw Star Trek Beyond. Pretty good film, I would say. Uh, I could easily see a lot of people thinking it might be the best of the three new ones, simply because it's more of a throwback in style to the TV show be it the original series or next generation. So I do recommend people seeing it if they're Star Trek fans. And beyond that, I've started up a couple of video games, uh, dying light, which was the last of the uh, series of Xbox one games I received either on my birthday or Christmas. It's not going that great. Uh, the story is very pedestrian, but the, the big issue is it is inducing motion sickness in me which was a problem I've had in first-person shooters. I mean, we're talking like 90s first-person shooters. So it's just the way some of the context will flow. I just I can take Dramamine if I want to play for an extended period, but you have to remember to do that ahead of time. And I don't like to do that. So normally I only get in maybe 30 to 60 minutes. Other uh, game I started up yesterday is called Gems of War. It's sort of a puzzle quest clone. So it's like a mix of Bejeweled, but you're kind of role-playing at the same time. So that's kind of cool. It's a free-to-play game, but it uh, seems to be fully accessible without having to actually invest money. But that's really all I've been up to. Tony, what's been going on with you? I've been doing a whole lot of nothing. I'm still uh, been reading and listening to a bunch of audiobooks. Uh, most of my time has been spent prepping for my certification test, so I've just been doing a lot of studying and stuff with the kids. Nothing really fancy. No, no gaming other than I've get, been getting in maybe one or two rounds of Overwatch every other day or so, and that's about it. I guess there's not much going on with us, but luckily we have a full show worth of content that'll be exciting for everyone to make up for the lack of excitement in our own lives. So let's go ahead and we'll kick it off with the pinball segment. And I'll go ahead and start with the big finale to our 1980s Pinball Machine Mania tournament. So for those who have been listening along, we have been having a series of games built between 1980 and 1989, duking it out to see who is indeed the one worthy to reign supreme. And the finals were between uh, Williams's uh, Pinbot, which came in in our metrics at the five seed, which is based off of where they were. Uh, on the pin side rankings when I first developed the list and eight ball deluxe, which is uh, came in as the four seed from over on the Bally side. So with over a hundred votes that were cast in the finals, which were far and away. Well I, well, I shouldn't say far and away. It seemed like every round we got more and more votes. I think there may have been one exception. So either more and more listeners started to come along and play play with it, or it just started to spread beyond the, the show in and of itself, because I know we've advertised it in a variety of venues. Uh, but the result was Pinbot actually won and won pretty significantly. It had 59.6% of the vote. So basically a 60-40 split between Pinbot and 8-Ball Deluxe. That's a pretty uh, convincing win right there. I mean, almost 10%. Yeah, I was surprised. Uh, and then no small I – sh I should say that Pinbot was my pick. I, Might as well. So I wasn't I wasn't disappointed with the result. But I know in one of the locations you had listed the finals – 
uh, was on Reddit in the pinball section on Reddit. And every single comment that I saw in there was in favor of eight ball deluxe. If they said anything that was, uh, because I didn't look at the results while they were coming in. That was my only clue as to what way I thought things were going. And I thought, Oh, eight ball deluxe will probably win. Also, it was a, you know, mildly higher seed and it is a very good game. So all of that just made me think, okay, well, I was actually mentally preparing to my list of things I like about 8-Ball Deluxe so I could say why I thought the game won uh, before <laughs> uh, on Friday when I closed the vote out and I saw, oh, no, never mind. I get to write up about Pinbot instead. And for those that don't know, and I did go back and check, and it's still the case on the Pinside rankings because they do change uh, from time to time, particularly with new when new Stern titles and such come out. But uh, Pinside has and had Elvira and the Party Monster monsters was the top rated 1980s game and that fell a couple of rounds ago in our contest and so as of friday elvira is rated at uh, number 42 on their top solid state list pinbots at number 83 so as is unsurprising our results are far more accurate thereby proving that pinside's uh, evaluations are incredibly off but <laughs> But we're not here to judge, Pinside. We're just a, we're a humble podcast. So I, what I thought is it would probably be good for us to give some thoughts on the on the winner. So I I guess kind of what are your thoughts about Pinbot? Because you and I both have have played it. I'd say we've probably played it fairly significantly, despite it being a game that neither of us really well we don't own. I don't have any friends who own it. Uh, but it was on location in the Kansas City area for quite a while. So I actually got a number of games on it and played it in tournaments several times. Yeah, I did too. And it was it was always a favorite to play. I, I always enjoyed it. It was really nice, the one that was on location. Once you figured out the exact sweet spot, you could hit that skill shot pretty much every time. That helped a lot in tournament play. I think the uh, skill shot is – I mean, the skill shot really is – important to the overall flow of the game but overall it's a a genuinely fun game to play even if it has the horribleness of being able to steal multi-balls from the other person <laughs> and yeah <laughs> that's one of those older game things that exist that it's like oh this is a fun game i've got every oh i failed to activate the multi-ball and there the other guy got it i did half the work yeah, yeah, and I and I took advantage of that or tried to on on a few of my tournament games. Um and so yeah, that's a good point. I would I think that in terms of what I like about Pinbot, I like the sounds, it's very 80s. I like the light show. I think for an an 80s game with the the colored stand-up targets and everything, it's just it's it's a lot more colorful than most of the games of the era in my view were. Uh I like that the multi-ball wasn't overly hard like i think firepower's multi-ball is just really really hard to activate it is. and but it's not a gimme multi-ball either like how the tri balls were on all the data east games where it's like if you got to ball three and you hadn't earned the multi-ball you could have it for free sort of thing so it's sort of in that to me it was in in between it wasn't a gimme multi-ball but it wasn't overly hard but opening the visor was uh, required pretty risky shots because those were sort of straight up the middle shots and pinball uh, can be a bit of a drain monster. Uh, I liked, as you noted, uh, the skill shot, definitely uh, that 100,000 point and the multiplier that starts to go into effect on the skill shot as you go on from ball to ball makes it uh, really important and can be a difference in tight games. I've had a number of tournament games where the victory was entirely determined by who hit the skill shots. 
I've so, had that a couple of times too. It, it unlike a lot of the games, especially the more modern games, they with pinbots, the skill shot felt like if you miss the skill shot, you were hurting bad. Yeah, it, it, just because you would have to put in a lot of work to be able to earn that many points just actually playing the field. And with a, you know, a game without ball save, it's, there are a lot of risks to being able to play that long on it anyway, even if you have the center post in between the flippers, which the one we played did. Uh, the other thing is, uh, that sort of secondary skill shot, uh, that was, uh, akin to attack from Mars. If you do the super skill and can hit the center and drop that bank. So you can immediately start attacking the UFO. Pinbot has the same thing. I only ever pulled it off competitively once, but. When you go from launch, it, you can choose, and actually, if you hit the lit stand-up target, you instantly open the visor, so you don't have to light the entire sequence. It's very yeah, that's, hard. That's, yeah. It's hard, but that is a massively useful trick. Yeah, and so I liked, I respected that because it rewarded being able to choose when you were going to shoot that, get that skill going, and save you from a lot of risky shots to open up for the multi-ball. The idea of being able to steal the locked balls and the solar value, you could steal the solar values as well, could be fun for from for a casual play perspective. I liked how the extra ball worked where you could control which lane it was, you know, you moved the lit light. And so the ball was going to drain out of an outline. You could if you had the light going, you could actually go and make it give you an extra ball and that the idea the uh, to advance the planets. Those were not those were difficult shots as well because you had two ways to do it, but they were both on the extreme edges of the table. So there are a lot of things I really like about Pinbot. It's definitely a game I would like to own. Uh, but there are things that, you know, as as we would expect, as with anything, really, there are a number of uh, elements that aren't so great. And so I'd say sort of the, the detriments I see to Pinbot are, as we noted, for tournament purposes, the theft of the multiball, the theft of the solar value, not really seen as a, you know, it's okay. And there are times where tournaments will will do that. And definitely in local tournaments, I didn't think it was a big deal. But it obviously, there are better games from a balanced perspective than allowing that. I'd say the big thing that always sort of stuck with me, though, was there's not, not much to shoot for on the left flipper. It's like the right side of that play field is consumed by that upper play field where the ball will kind of drain down. And then you've got that planet advance shot over there, but it's really hard. Uh, and I'd say it's a riskier shot than shooting for the drop targets on the left, which also gave you points. So it was like there was really only one thing to shoot for from the left flipper, and it wasn't that great of a thing to shoot for. So that was probably, I think, the biggest problem with Pinbot is it's very much a right flipper game. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. The way it's laid out, every shot you want, you're going to take off the right flipper. I mean, the only other thing you can do is is send it down the middle with the left flipper, but that's not a safe shot in, in its own respect. And the fact that there's nothing else to even aim for just puts a real hurt on your gameplay. Yeah, and I'm not sure when it was designed what the, what the thinking was. Maybe it was thought that with the number of uh, stand-up targets – that uh, to open the visor that you'd feel like you're using the left flipper a lot to because you could make all those shots from that flipper. Same with being able to lock the two multi balls. You could do them from either flipper. But just by and large, where the ramp is, where the drop targets are, all of that's what you use the right flipper for. So but overall, uh, I think it's a fun game. And uh, obviously it was successful. It spawned a series of, uh, you know, Bride of Pinbot and Jackbot in 
in sequence uh, to kind of celebrate that IP. And I am pretty pleased that it ended up winning. So that was nice. And the tournament is over. So we get a break from all this and then we, we will we'll start up something new. I've been and we'll have to Tony and I will have to talk about it. But I've been leaning towards Tony's idea, which we mentioned on a prior episode way, way back, which was maybe doing something where we take uh, the instead of top games from an era, take the top developers. You probably use Pennside again. See what who's the top developer based off of where the games are ranked, and then do kind of a not just four developers, but maybe do eight or sixteen, and let them fight their way through and see which developer making which game is the best. Yeah, I I, I like that idea because there's just so many iconic game designers that are the bread and butter of pinball even today so many of them are the bre- so many of them are from the old era the 80s and such yeah and also there are a lot that have some had some very successful titles that didn't go on and develop 16 <laughs> 16 actual <laughs> tables so well, we definitely need to do something where we you know, obviously with when it came to manufacture it was e- pretty easy i almost just said easy outright but i even struggled in that what we had to do that other bracket because i didn't have enough um, 80s stern electronics to fill out 16 slots so that's where i ended up having to do data east and and game plan and zacharia uh, just mm-hmm. to fill it out yeah hey there's a incidentally as an aside there apparently through steam is a zacharia game now virtual pinball of uh, i think it's got 30 tables uh i've downloaded it it's got one free one that comes along with it i've only played it once for about five minutes yep. uh the Graphically, it was too intensive. I was turning down the settings for my computer, and uh, I kind of got it playable, but then it was time to move on, so I don't have anything else to say other than check it out if you guys are curious about it. They were the third, manu- they were the third largest manufacturer at the time, uh, only, uh, only against Bally and Williams. It's just they're not well-known in the U.S. because they're Italian. They yeah, made a I, lot I of games. I thing about the uh, game, the the arcade the virtual pinball game but i haven't actually gotten it or tried it out yeah i don't i don't have a good enough feel to give a review for it so we're not going to talk about in the video game section at this time at least um but just figured might as well let people uh be aware of it since we just brought up the company yet again (laughs) we really only have one other pinball topic which we can go ahead and transition into now and it was an anonymous question which incidentally if anyone wants to you know, ask us or want, have us discuss something and you don't want your name used, uh, you, you don't have to make a fake email account. You can just email and say, please don't use my name or please have this be anonymous and we will be more than happy to comply. But it was sort of a two-parter question, uh, but it, I think it's a lot of fun. It was out of the Pinside Top 50, now I'm assuming they mean solid state games, but because there is a there's a Top 100 and they actually do a 200 and 300 as well. And then they also do it on the EM side. But Anyway, question is, out of the Pinside Top 50, what game do you most wish you owned? And also, what Top 50 game do you think is the most overrated? So I guess, well, I guess let's tackle them one by one. Uh, Tony, out of, the, out of the list of 50, and I, again, when I was looking and doing my ratings, I looked on Friday, so I don't know when they changed change the ratings. They update it weekly. Uh, but based off of that, I have my pick, but... Which one do you wish you would own? You owned, I guess, money, no object. Just which one would you like to have for play purposes? Attack from Mars. I love Attack from Mars. It's a fun game. The callouts crack me up every time. I like that it's got the wide open middle 
and all the with how all the shots are arrayed. But it's a game we have on location, and it is the game that on location I play the most. Uh, not in tournament play. Like I will, I will go to Pizza West, and for every game I play on another machine, I tend to play a game on Attack from Mars because I love Attack from Mars so much. It's, it's also, a really good pick. I yeah. actually, actually, when we're talking of developers, his uh, his famous four that Attack from Mars is my favorite. I think it's I think it's better than Medieval Madness. It is just I love that game so much. It, it's when it comes to like a pinball arcade on pinball arcade i play it almost if i just want to play a quick couple games on pinball arcade it's always attack from mars that's the one i go to it's it's the one i like the most so yeah if i that's my most wanted game is attack from mars on that list well i think most people would agree that you've picked a very good one Mine is also a, a top, uh, and that wh- where was Attack from Mars ranked? Do you remember? Number five. Okay, yeah, I thought I knew it was up in the top ten every time I've looked, and I'm not surprised. Uh, mine is also a top ten game, but mine's right behind it. I took their what was number six as of Friday, which is uh, Lord of the Rings, and that's an easy pick for me. I don't really have a, a pinball machine that I would call my Grail. That's often an expression I've seen used on pinball discussions is what's your kind of your holy grail? What pin do you most want? Because that my thought when I hear that is it means if something was a true grail for me, I money would essentially be no object as long as I actually could put the money together to acquire it. And my issue with Lord of the Rings is I could put together the money to acquire it. But given that they sell for more than new Stern Pros sell for, even though it's just a little bit, that just bothers me a little too much to actually commit to it. But uh, in terms of what one do I most want, and I didn't have that as a factor, it would easily be Lord of the Rings. Uh, I love the theme. I love the callouts as they're used in the table. I think the layout is enjoyable. I love that it has a super deep rule set. And, you know, I suppose the most interesting thing is I've never actually played a physical Lord of the Rings. I've only ever played it virtually. It was one of the first tables I put into my virtual cab. And it's probably the one that I play the most when I set aside playing games to learn the rules for tournaments that I know are going to be on location in the area. So for me, it's an easy pick, but that's just because I love the IP so much. And it happened to turn out as a really, really good pinball machine, I think, and I'd say the Pinside ratings would agree with this, the best of the White Star era from Stern. So given those are what we like, let's go ahead and shift on over to the overrated. So Tony, how what'd you think of this? Uh, I found this one to be a lot harder than saying which game I liked the most, but we have two questions and so we must we must tackle it. Yeah, I think the most overrated games are a lot tougher choice. There's a lot of games in the top 50 that I think are worse than their, than some of the games that are in the top 100 and could easily be swapped around. Uh, that said, I decided to go with Indy 500. Indy 500 is not actually a bad game as far as I can tell. I am just horrible at it and absolutely nothing I do, no practice I get in on it, uh, either virtually or on real on location tables, no tips or tricks that I find out and learn and practice on. Nothing I seem to do makes me any better on that table. I just try and try and try, and I just I can't do it. Anytime it comes up in a tournament draw, it is uh, I just accept it. It's an instant loss. I Every time I've been in tournament play with somebody against me on Indy 500, 
they will normally score more on their first ball than I do on all three balls put together. And I will sit down and, I mean, I've sat and watched them and seen exactly what they've done, and I can't do it. I do not know why, but for some reason, that game just, I can't ever score any points on it. And because of that, I don't really enjoy playing the game. When it comes up, I play it because it's up in tournament, but I just don't. I feel like no matter what I do, even following all the tricks I've read online and what videos I've watched, I still feel like I don't know what's going on on that game, or and I don't seem to ever score any points. So that's the game I would drop down to my most overrated. I've actually never played that in tournament yet. I've tried it a few times on location. I so yeah, I don't I don't have a good feel yet to know. I I wasn't surprised though cuz I know I've heard you express frustration with it before and I I was actually I was a bit surprised to see that it was in the top 50 on Pinside. Yeah, it's barely in the top 50, but it's in the top 50 and it's just a game that it's just it it hates me. That I, I think that's what it is. Is that game just hates me, and I'm just, I just cannot figure it out for the life of me. I mean, I've watched people who just go insane on that table, and I've watched them closely, and I none of the stuff that they did that made huge points ever seems to do anything for me. So. I don't know. I'm just bad at it. Well, I went with an approach on these to say, what would I identify as a game that I just derank the most, I think, rather than necessarily hate the game or anything. Uh, but also, I wanted to qualify mine in that I wanted to find something that I'd also push out of the top 50 in the process of the deranking. Because I could easily say, like, Medieval Madness shouldn't be, it was number two when I looked on Friday, and I would put it down to, like, th- you know, 30 or something. Not, no, no, I, I need to be more extreme than that. So, I'm going with Theater of Magic, which is currently ranked number 13. I think that Theater of Magic is carried almost entirely by its art. I think the game has good flow, but not any better flow than a myriad of other games that one could choose from. I think the dots look good, but also we have tons of games with really good dots. So this is a game that I think probably would have rated really high when it came out, but as time has gone by, I really question it staying as high up as it has. The moving trunk uh, gimmick, again, 30 years ago, cool, but it's 2016. I don't think it's that impressive. The, my, ba- my main issue, though, why I would derank the game, and I'm kind of keeping this all in the context with the first question of home ownership is, I think Theater of Magic is way too easy of a game. You can time out all of the modes, uh, the fact that start, starting each of the next modes, it doesn't get progressively harder. It doesn't do an attack from Mars or medieval madness where you need more and more shots to take down that flying saucer or to break through that castle. It's just hit that trunk the three times, spins around, feed the ball. There you go. There's the next mode. Catch the ball and you can rinse and repeat and cheese your way through it. I think the challenge is entirely neutered by how that game can be approached. I think the skill shot is stupid, if you can even call it a skill shot. I think that the wizard mode, which I've gotten to on the virtual version on Pinball Arcade is a total joke. I didn't even realize I had played the wizard mode at first because it is so anticlimactic. So while it's a decent game in a lot of ways, I think Theater Magic probably should be ranked at around, oh, I don't know, 100. Do you think that Theater of Magic is weaker than Circus Voltaire? <sighs> you know, I thought about... I I actually I sat there and I weighed that and I think Circus Voltaire is around 18 or so when I looked 
And so broadly, it's ranked less. The, the problem is I've played Theater of Magic a lot more than Circus Voltaire. And so I think a lot of that, my bias to, against Theater Magic stems from the fact that uh, it was one of the it was one of the ten titles I had to play a lot in the uh, five minute virtual tournament that I mentioned uh, with uh, Summer Games Done Quick. Yeah, and so I just I've put a ton of time in virtually on Theater of Magic. I've I've played it in the actuality as well, and it's just personally I think all three of Papa Duke's big artistically oriented games so tales of the arabian nights theater of magic and circus voltaire i think they're all too easy for so in terms of being i just don't understand why they're top 20 games that easy of a of game to play from a homeowning perspective i think they would look great but i would get so bored because i could get through the modes relatively easily i just think i don't know enough on circus voltaire's modes to say if they're easier or not I think theater of magic is easier to complete and get to the wizard mode than tails though. And so I would, I would rate theater lower than tails. And I just, I think there are so many other games that offer a lot more depth of play that I'm just not impressed. Yeah. Those three games, I think now I think that they're ranking. If I recall looking at it correctly uh, in the top 100 is tails theater and circle tear. And I think that's how I would rank those three particular games against each other. But that's just because I'm not a real big fan of Circuit Voltaire, and I think that Tales is a really fun game. But I haven't played it enough to... I'm like you, I've played Theater of Magic a lot. I've played a fairly large amount of Circuit Voltaire, but I haven't really played all that much of uh, Tales. Hmm. Yeah, and again, most of my experience on that one is also virtual. It is my favorite of those three. I just, I think that some of the stuff like the little balloon pop up on Circus Voltaire, I think there are elements to that table that make it harder. And I don't, you know, everything isn't all about being totally drain happy, monster, terrible game. I mean, Lord of the Rings is notorious for having really long ball times unless you set it up to be super hard. However, it makes up for that by having a very, very deep code that's difficult to get all the way through. And uh, I just think Theater of Magic, it could have if, if someone were to reprogram it now, give it a like a Chad H treatment like he did with uh, Tales of the Crypt from the Crypt or Jurassic Park or something. There's a lot of potential there because it's got a really good layout and it looks awesome. It's just uh, the ability to just get through those modes in such an easy cheese fashion that happened when Star Trek, uh, the Stern Star Trek came out is you could time out all the modes and people complain because it's like, well, you just sail right through them all. And so they made it so that you had to keep hitting switches for those timers to progress. And it makes a big difference because the game all of a sudden requires a, a challenge. It has it mandates skill for you to be able to advance through all those modes. It also has a lot more modes. So, and the shots to activate those are, are challenging. I just, I see, to me, Theater of Magic and a lot of the Papa Duke stuff is an excellent on-location pinball for especially for people that aren't very familiar with pinball, but I just don't see it standing up against a lot of more modern games that are way lower on the list than this is that I think offer those elements that I'm looking for that this game lacks. I can understand that. That's uh, something that I can see where having that kind of code update would be nice for it. the whole timing out thing. The ability to just cradle the ball and wait out a mode is, is definitely game breaking in its own way. So no, I can see it. It seems like a solid choice to me. 
Well, the world may disagree. We'll find out. <laughs> well, that's enough about pinball. Let's go ahead and transition on over into video games. And we really only have one main video game topic to talk about, but it's kind of a two-parter in and of itself. So I think that it's really one that's getting a lot of attention in the news lately, and that would be Nintendo. Now, we discussed Nintendo last episode, uh, mostly in the context of Pokemon Go. And so the first thing I thought we should probably talk about is Nintendo's financials, because apparently Nintendo is not having a very good time financially. Uh, in the news this uh, past week was the summary from the first quarter earnings report. And I just wanted to go over some highlights to give some context. They reported a 31.3% decrease in net sales with an operating income loss of 5.1 billion yen, which equates to about $48.1 million U.S., Nintendo noted that uh, some of the loss is due to the yen appreciating in value, but that there were also performance issues. Wii U sales are, and this was not in their report, but I would use the word pathetic. It was a 53% decrease on a year-on-year basis. Yeah, the, that's, a, that's a small loss. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I could see that a lot of that may be driven by the fact that it's been known that the Nintendo NX is going to be upcoming. And so, you know, end of generation fall off, maybe a portion of that. Uh, so, but, uh, maybe. Yeah, I, do, I don't know. Uh, uh, here's one that we talked about in one of our previous episodes, Star Fox Zero, which was the biggest release during the reporting period. It only sold 320,000 units which incidentally is the worst sales performance ever of a Star Fox game. Well, that game had some inherent issues and and combined with the Wii U's already small user base, that's definitely not promising. No. Uh, despite that poor performance, software sales did actually increase in the period by 3%, but that was essentially carried by Splatoon and Mario Maker, which isn't surprising. I've heard very good things about both. Yeah, they're both supposed to be really excellent. And I, I've seen a lot of Mario Maker. I've watched it on Twitch because it's fascinating, but I'm not as familiar with Splatoon. I've seen a little bit of it. Uh, let's see. And then the their handheld uh, market, uh, 3DS, the hardware sales on that were down 7%, but software sales for the device were up 7%. Uh, not in this report because it came out after this quarterly period, but worth noting because of our discussion last week. And of course that is on the cultural uh, consciousness at this point, Pokemon go uh, it being a runaway excess uh, excess. And well, you could say excess, but runaway success uh, was announced that by Nintendo as not being very helpful to their bottom line. So while Nintendo's stock price was shooting up through the roof when Pokemon Go appeared on everyone's iPhone and Android device, it then plummeted back down once it was announced by Nintendo and figured out by everyone else that their share of the profits is really, really small because they only have a limited stake in the involved companies that put the product out. Yeah, they've got no stake whatsoever in Niantic. Niantic was a, it was a Google company that spun off on its own originally. And they've only got a small, like 30 some odd percent stake in the Pokemon company, which is the primary Pokemon imprint. Right, right. And since they only have a minority share in one of the companies that wasn't the lead company on the product there, I mean, they will make money off of it, but they, how small? I don't know. Small enough though, that Nintendo said that they weren't going to adjust their forecasts. That's pretty small. Yeah. 
So let's go ahead and uh, shift back over to the the Wii U performance. Um, and I'd noted, you know, my speculation that some of it could be because of the Nintendo NX coming out. That sort of segues into our second side of the Nintendo. But let's go ahead and get it all lumped in so we can have our discussion. And that is there were leaked specs available now for the Nintendo NX. And some of the key specifics that I took note of were that the console will be 100% portable. It will have a sort of docking station to allow you to plug it into a TV when you are not mobile. It will shift back into using cartridges, and the capacity of those cartridges is expected to be 32 gig. And because of that shift to cartridges, it probably will not be backwards compatible. It is also not expected to achieve graphical parity with the current models of the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. Well, even if it could achieve graphical parity, I don't see how you could do it on a mobile platform because your battery would last like 14 seconds. And I saw that as a question that a lot of people have had were, how long is this battery going to last? I did not see anything leaked about what the battery performance is expected to be or what its capacity is expected to be. But obviously, that's begging a pretty big question. I guess so. Just opening up into our overall discussion on Nintendo, and if I can, I'll seg back to the financial thing briefly here. The Wii U is a failure. It is a failure console. It's, yep, it's a bomb. It's yeah. a big old bomb. It's, as you know, I we you know we spent a lot of time, uh, pr- mostly because I own an Xbox device. Uh, you know, paying attention to how Xbox does, sort of vis-a-vis the PlayStation Four. Which essentially, you know, without having hard numbers for Microsoft, the sense is that it's the PlayStation's outselling the Xbox two to one. But the Xbox One is still outperforming the Xbox 360 in its current place on the life cycle. So while the gap is bigger between Sony and Microsoft than it was last generation, Microsoft is not doing bad with their console. They're actually doing pretty well. They just wish they had a bigger share of the market. The Wii U, though, has been a total disaster. I I think it's a mix because I think the name confused everyone. The name was a terrible mistake. Uh, And that might be the biggest thing. But the other thing is that the whole motion-controlled gimmick is dead, and casuals that bought the Wiis didn't go and buy the Wii U's. No, and that was the what drove – I mean, no matter what you say, the Wii itself, the original Wii, was a massive success. Yes, biggest successful console of the last generation. People, and, I forget that, but it was. Yeah, and it was completely because of the motion control, and especially because of the casuals, the the people who aren't gamers per se, who wanted it and played it a fair amount. But most people I know with Wii's who went out and bought them, still they are packed away. I've got a Wii, and it's packed away. It's been packed away since I moved, and that's been six years ago now, and I still haven't unpacked it. Mm-hmm. The the problem that I I had conceptually with the Wii and the Wii U both, and so more focusing on the latter because that's what we're currently discussing. But they don't get the same third party support, and that's where the graphical parity thing kind of comes into play for me. Is currently, if you were to decide you wanted to be a PC gamer, or you wanted to be a PlayStation Four gamer, or you wanted to be an Xbox One gamer, when it comes to like triple A high dollar releases, you're going to have access to like 90% of them on any of those devices. Yes. Like Ubisoft, EA, Activision, they're going to give it to you. You're going to get your Call of Duty. You're going to get your Madden. You're going to get all that stuff, but not on Nintendo. So if you've decided to go Wii U, then your options are you are you've chosen a sole source gaming system essentially to only play first party proprietary Nintendo stuff 
or you're going to have to have a secondary console or gaming PC to be able to do everything else that your Nintendo exclusive choice prohibits you from experiencing. That's a pretty big, I mean, for people that are, you know, planning on a budget, that is a pretty big ask to say you actually have to commit to two systems if you want to play what all your friends are playing. It is. I think the big thing is Nintendo's first party games and first party stuff is the primary draw between Nintendo as is. I mean, Mario and uh, Legend of Zelda and all of those things, those are what draw people to getting Nintendo systems. And those are the primary draws they have. And I think they're the most valuable thing Nintendo actually has. And I, what I think is happening is I think Nintendo is going to end up leaving the hardware con- economy entirely. They're going to become another software company, just like Sega did or like Atari did uh, when they came out of the console market. And I think probably the biggest thing and what we'll see the largest rise we've probably seen in years in Nintendo stock will be the day that they stop going as a hardware uh, creator. And the first time you see them announce, you know, Legend of Zelda available on a sit game system that people actually own and play. I think that everything will go nuts at that point because I think their primary as a first party developer is good enough that they can handle the loss of the hardware side of the company. And I think that's what's going to end up happening before too long. I think. I think broadly, I agree with you that it that would be best for Nintendo. And I think long term, that's sort of what I th- see happening to the company. But I don't think that's Nintendo's intention at this time. No, I think and, Nintendo's intention at this time is to shift to the market that they control, which is the mobile market. But they're rapidly losing control of that to phones and tablets and smart devices that people have with them every day of the week, everywhere they go. Right. And I, I've wondered, you know, as those, as the proliferation of smartphones has increased, uh, how well the, what has been historically speaking, going all the way back to the Game Boy, Nintendo's very strong control on mobile gaming. So, and that kind of gets back to where we were bringing in Pokemon Go, even though it didn't have to do with this first quarter financial report. It showed uh, to the world, just how popular the phone tablet market uh, would embrace these first-party Nintendo properties, or even you know other, you know maybe not even necessarily first-party, but just items associated with Nintendo. Uh, you know, Ingress was not the runaway smash that po- Pokemon Go is. Pokemon Go is a smash because it's Pokemon. Yeah, it's not. It's not. That's. I mean, it's. It's just like when we talk pinball and we talk about licensed IP versus non-licensed IP. Licensed IP does better. And that's what Pokemon is. And so Nintendo has this opportunity. But in my mind, I don't know if the company is capable at this time of making that turn. I think they're too stubborn about it. It's like how Microsoft was before they brought back in uh, Phil Spencer to run their Xbox division. And the previous leadership was pushing the Windows phone and all the Microsoft stuff would only be available on the Microsoft products. Whereas now Microsoft's new approach has been uh, to get their software on anything, even if they don't make it themselves, they want their software wherever it can be. Uh, and that's how they're going to you know, make their money is on their software side. They'll still do hardware where it makes sense, but they don't want to be a hardware company like they were trying to be. They were trying to be an everything company and it just yeah. wasn't working. 
And I can see Nintendo going the same route, or even going just, as I said earlier, going to just controlling, trying to control the mobile market. And I think Nintendo makes a lot of good games, and some of their best games they've made anymore are on the 3DS and are on the purely mobile market. And there are games that have a lot of stuff that require you know, a controller to do, not something you can do with just a phone. And I think that's where we're going to start seeing the the weirdness is because there's a lot of fun games out there that you can't go with just a touch screen and, and, and how phones and tablets are designed. Right. So unless there's a huge takeoff in like Bluetooth, uh, controllers for that people carry around in their pocket to play games on their phone and tablet. I still think there's going to be a slot for the mobile gaming device. It's just how big of a slice of the pie is it going to take? Right. I I think you're I think you're correct. I'm conf- I'm a confused, and this gets to where these NX specs come out. I'm confused at what Nintendo's strategy is here. I mean, seven percent sales going down on the hardware side of the 3DS, uh, which has been out a while, notwithstanding. They are, their mobile market has still been doing – it's always been doing well. I don't understand this announcement about a mobile console. To me, this sounds like – let's say aside what we've already mentioned, like the battery issues and all that, which really question just how truly portable it's going to be in rec- terms of like the ability to play it for very long while you're out and about. I, I'm wondering, is this going to cannibalize their 3DS market? Can they? It's because isn't it? Is this not two different handhelds essentially? It's going to depend upon the format, I guess. I mean, it's going to depend upon how big it is. I mean, part of the issue with the 3DS and why I know a lot of people don't carry 3DSs with them anymore is that the 3DS has a fairly large footprint. It's a lot bigger than your phone. It, it's even in its folded up size, it's the size of a lot of the mid range or lower, not mid range, but mid sized tablets. I mean, it's a. It's about the same size folded up as a five or a seven inch tablet. I don't know how big is the NX going to be. How powerful is it going to be? And the thirty-two gig on cartridges for a modern game seems silly. Yeah, I want. I wondered at first if that was going to have a, a huge impact. It's just thinking about imme- current immediate games, but I I heard elsewhere that on average most of the higher end, again we'll say AAA games, are running about thirty five to forty. So thirty two would be a problem. Again, all that sort of stuff to me says that you're disincentivizing third party people from coming onto the NX and saying, okay, well we will have a we will have a Nintendo NX version of Call of Duty. The, no, not with a 32 gigabyte limit. You're not. So well, and I can't in my mind even wrap the idea around Nintendo going with anything that could have the visual fidelity to do so, a game like that. It just is not the type of thing Nintendo seems to go for. At least not now. But they used to be known for graphical, you know, relevancy. At this point, I mean, I get that Mario can look cartoony and he doesn't need photorealistic rendering, but the shutting out of the ability for third-party developers to be able to exploit that fascinates me. I mean, unless this is going to, I mean, this, the NX is going to have to be more money than the 3DS. I, I don't know how much it's going to be, but I'm just, yeah, you're, the size thing you brought up is a really good point. It's not, I, it's, I, I guess it's going to have the capability of detachable 
you know, which is an unusual controllers, two controller ports or something. But still, I'm I'm just trying to imagine hauling this thing around. And I just it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, why not just make a special docking station for the 3DS and say, okay, well, the 3DS is gonna have a docking station, and you'll be able to use Wii U controllers on it, and we're just making that our console now. Uh, that's it's a, almost like the opposite day of that. We're just gonna we're gonna make a uh, your PlayStation 4, but you'll be able to carry it around. Granted, it's gonna be the size of a brick, and you're gonna be able to do it for 35 minutes, and then you're gonna have to plug it in, uh, and it won't fit in any pocket unless cargo shorts come back into fashion. I, hey, I just, wait, wait, I, wait, 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 wait. Cargo shorts have never left fashion. I wear cargo uh, shorts all the time. Uh, yes, yes. I, I'm sure that that has set the fashion standard. I stand corrected. <laughs> your your decision ha, has righted years of wrong. And so at least now, everyone who was just for a moment panicked at my judgment there will, will be at peace. Yeah. And so don't worry. And, and your and the giant baggy jeans are okay still too. The the whole era of those. Oh, so you you go with those super slim jeans? No, I I, re- I, I wear jeans. Whatever jeans work provides. That's all uh, I. That's all I wear. I don't. I don't. I don't own a pair of jeans that hasn't been provided by work because I would just wear shorts or slacks. I don't know much about jean fashion other than apparently what I what I hear and that Levi's at some point fell out of fashion because that's all I have. And, and it's like, no, those aren't the cool jeans anymore. It's like when I was a kid, they were the cool jeans. <laughs> oh, well. oh, well, OK, so poor Nintendo will have to stay tuned and and learn more as time goes on. But I am not optimistic with the both the finance. I'm not surprised at the financial report. I'm concerned about what they're indicating regarding the nx specs and i'm also concerned about what statements they've made in the wake of the success of pokemon go which seem to suggest that they are not planning on putting more things out on phone right now which makes no sense but no it doesn't since when has nintendo done stuff that has really made sense it seems like they're a company that is trapped a decade in the past and they're trying to make every keep everything like it was more than a decade 20 20 years in the past it's Even. a good point. And it may be a corporate culture thing. Just uh, this is the only thing I can really think of is there's something internal to Nintendo that makes them behave that way. But uh well, we'll see if they can if they can survive uh, if they can survive or evolve. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't be the first big company to be knocked out of the hardware market. No, they they wouldn't. You know, we'll we'll have to see. I mean, in some in some ways, uh, personally, I would kind of like them to see them go the way of Sega in that regard, but but I would like to see a lot of their first person their fir- their first party titles on more capable devices. Yeah, the only thing is I don't want them. I kind of feel like Sega has stumbled on their software side as well, and I would like Nintendo to maintain their high quality standard that we see in most of their first party. Yeah, but I never thought Sega had that strong of a first party lineup compared. Nor to like nor Nintendo. did I, but. But I know I, I know there are those die-hard Sonic guys out there, but yeah, well, I, I never liked Sonic. <laughs> it was all right. It's just, I, I think a lot of that is just that's what they had to latch on to because they got stuck with the Segas and they didn't get to play Mario, and so that was a sort of jealousy. But hey, it could have uh, been worse. At least they didn't have the Turbo Graphics and was Bonk's Adventure or something like that was the big yeah. thing that launched for Turbo Graphics. But since going software only, Sega's had some Sonic games that even Sonic fans acknowledge are just awful pieces of trash. So that's my concern. We don't yeah. want 
We don't want Paper Mario to become Paper in the Wastebasket Mario. (laughs) But speaking of baskets, let's go to the third basket of this podcast, our tabletop section, which is going to be all about CantCon. Both of us attended CantCon last weekend. I attended for two days and Dennis attended for one day. So I'll go ahead and start things off. Uh, I attended on last Friday. I had two games, uh, two four-hour games uh, that stretched uh, with no break in between because I timed them very poorly. So I had no chance for lunch. My first game of the day was... uh, Dungeons and Dragons 5e Adventures League game because I wanted to get a taste for some 5e because I haven't played it at all. I haven't played any Dungeons and Dragons since uh, 3 or 3.5. So uh, the game I played was the very first in the Adventure League setting. It was the mists of something that I cannot remember now. It was fun. Uh, I played the classic Dwarf Paladin. I had a lot of fun RPing because most of the uh, party was very neutral and very mercenary, and I was very lawful good. So I was constantly trying to to get the rest of the party to, uh, you know, not take everything as reward <laughs> or you know. Oh, we got your gems. We got your you had a you had a treasure chest of three hundred gems that was stolen, and we got back your treasure chest of a hundred gems. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. The actual adventure itself, it was fun. It was kind of a uh, what it was was there were some uh gypsy there was a gypsy like family that had shown up recently and stuff had started getting stolen and some gems and a magic wand and a trailer full of weapons and I never got a good answer why there was a wagon full of weapons just sitting in town for anybody to pick up and walk away with. But uh, and we were finding the people taking them and returning them. And, you know, there turned out there, there, there was a big story to it. And they weren't stealing it because they were wanted to steal it. They were stealing it for, quote, unquote, good reasons and all that. But it was pretty enjoyable. I had a good, solid group. There were six of us, which I think is high but very workable uh, for a game. And uh, unlike some con games I've had in the past, everybody meshed really well and had a lot of fun. There was a lot of good RP in the group. Uh, my issue was I rolled terribly. I mean, I think I fit, had two successful attack rolls the entire four-hour game. And it wasn't that we weren't fighting. It's just I could not roll. I went through every single D20 I had, and it, all of them rolled terribly. And I had the second highest armor class in the uh, group I had an armor class 18, but oh, everything, that's very high. Oh yeah. Everything penetrated my armor though. Everything. Oh. My armor only turned one attack the entire game. I mean, our, our guys who were AC 14 and AC 12 were dodging stuff. And I, every time, every time the DM rolled against my AC, it was like 23. Okay. Yeah. Oh, natural 20. Yeah. Okay. Let's let, all right. So me and every other healing-capable person in the game basically spent their entire uh, – every bit of healing they had keeping me alive as I just soaked all the damage with hit points like I was like a barbarian designed to soak with hit points even though I wasn't because uh, my armor was useless. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 
the actual the actual adventure was a longer adventure. Uh, we barely got through it in our four hours, and we got started almost immediately. So it was a good run. Um, we kind of skipped an encounter. We just kind of the, the DM just had oh yeah this happened and you guys successfully fought off this and figured out the trick and continued so we could get to the final big fight and even then we were running so so short on time <clears throat> that instead of having the huge final fight that was designed to have we kind of played with it because we were out to rescue a guy and there were like three guards but you could hear a lot of stuff in um there were some barracks. So what we ended up doing was using a combination of magic and rope and tricks and this and that to tie the barracks doors shut long enough for us to take out the other guards, rescue the guy and run away before we could get chased down. That's how we finished it out. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was very much the whole run away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes retreat is the best offense. Yeah, it, it was. And we managed to finish it within our four hours. It was like I said, it wasn't it wasn't perfect, but uh it was a lot of fun. I played with a bunch of people that I've played with in years past at Cant Con and it was uh it was really good, uh all around. Awesome. Yeah, and I'll I'll keep my my thoughts on five E for after for after a while. Um the second game of the day is uh, I played a Planet Mercenary game. It was a demo game for Planet Mercenary. And I've talked about that on the show before yep, uh, because yep. I'm a Kickstarter backer of the game. And all but one of the people who joined up to play with us were Kickstarter backers. And the uh, the GM wa- had actually played a, in a game with the developers of the game at Gen Con last year. So he had, he had some good... Uh, ideas on how everything was supposed to progress. And it was, I think it was probably my funnest game of the entire weekend. Um, it hit every single point I was hoping for that game to hit. And it was insane in its own way because the way it is, it's, it uses a 3D6 system. And the requirement is that you have, you will, Two of your D6s are the same color, and one of the D6s is a different color, and you roll them. And anytime you succeed in a roll that you're doing, so anytime you succeed in a skill check, but the highest number showing on a dice is the off-color dice, you draw a Mayhem card. And Mayhem cards can be really good, kind of good, kind of bad, or really bad. And... It made the game to be ins- really insane because sometimes it'd be like, oh, okay, wow, that turned out awesome. And other times it'd be like, oh, no, that was bad. Uh, to the point that we had the, uh, the GM has the ability to, he can buy back because the game has, they call them rip tokens. They're, they're basically for like good role play or this or that that you can uh-huh. spend on. It's like, oh, I roll, I, I want to re-roll that. I'll spend a rip token or in, pl- or, like you've got a fire squad with you, and if there's a bunch of damage coming in and you don't want to soak the damage, you can spend a rip token, and one of your fire squad guys gets up up and f- takes the shot for you, basically. And wh- what's fun with that, and is that how they how you do it is when you start the game, you sit down, and before you start, you take uh, several index cards. We were we were doing three index cards because we each had a fire team of three, and on each index card, you write a name. The race of the guy, like if he was a human or an aspirin or a, 
or whatever one of any of the other sci-fi races are. And then you had to write three things about him, like his hobbies, his interests, their, you know, you know, do they have family, stuff like that. And then what would happen is when you spent a rib token, you would uh, hand one of them to the GM and the GM would sit there and he'd read it out to everybody. So everybody got to know this character. It's like, it's like, oh, this is this is Bob. He likes soap operas and listening to classical music and eating TV dinners alone while he cries. And then what he'd do is he would flip a coin. Heads, Bob survived. And if Bob survived, he got a little thing written on him. He got plus 20. If Bob died, Bob got ripped in half oh, and thrown away. Poor Bob. And... In all honesty, in this game, this is how, that's how you level up. Is you risk a guy, and you risk a guy, and you keep risking guys. And uh, when you finally die, you pick one of your surviving fire team members, and you become him. You ah, become that surviving okay. fire team member. So if I've risked Bob, and Bob survived four attacks, Bob's like got uh, at character creation. He's got the standard character creation start points. Plus 80. So he's got even more points to pour into his character. Creation. I see. I see. So, so that was, I mean, that, that, that mechanic was fun, but that's one of the things you can spend a rip token on. And one of the, one of the people who played with us, he, he lost his entire fire team. He lost all three of them. He didn't win a single flip. He, he got tails on all his entire fire team. They all died. <laughs> and then we had one Ouch. of the guys who kept putting the same fire team guy up, wanting him to die, and he just kept living. So he kept getting bonuses. Uh, so, <laughs> but it was, um, but the, uh, you can get for so good RP, will, the, the GM will give you a token if he thinks you earned it through good RP or there's that. But he can buy back a, a, a mayhem card if he thinks it will break the game like we had happen because we were trying to, we, we had a mayhem card pop up. We had a guy who was hacking the computer of the space station we ran and it was the mayhem card caused the absolute like worst possible thing to happen type critical terribleness that could happen on the skill check. So he basically destroyed the space station. We were all in. Hmm. It sounds so, like everyone got ripped in half there. Yeah. So they uh so, so the GM bought back the card and we all got an extra rip token and we just kept playing. Probably so good. Kind of, yeah, unless, yeah no, the, unless the game had almost been over. No, this was like less than five minutes into the game. This is one of the very oh. first things that happened. Oh wow. That would have been a pretty short session. Yeah, it would have. So it's a it's a nice thing, but it was I, I'm super excited for this game. It is it is even more interesting that I thought it was going to be, and I had high hopes for it. I like the mayhem. I like what it does because it's good or bad. You, you can have like, there's one card in the mayhem deck that is when it went, you did something so awesomely that another member of your, of one of the other PCs is basically in awe of you. So they're, uh, have a bonus to helping you out now because they want to help you or you can do stuff that, you can have stuff roll up where people are. It's like, wow, he did that and he survived, but we don't know how. So people are more so like your fire team will get negatives because they don't want to be on your fire team because you get your fire team killed a lot and stuff like that. Mm. 
So it can play with the game and how the game goes out uh, really well. But I enjoyed it quite a lot. We had uh, everybody RP'd really well, really well. The guy who, our GM, did amazing voice work. And the guy who played our captain did even better voice work. I don't know how he kept his voice up every time he was in character because... While I can do the voice he was doing, it hurts my throat. I mean, it hurts to do it. And he did it for the whole session. So I don't know how he did it, but it was awesome. Very cool. <laughs> Sounds uh, I, I, I kind of wish I'd played this now instead of what I did play. Yeah, it was it was it was an amazing game. I really enjoyed it. It was my favorite game of the weekend. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So let's move on to uh, CantCon on Saturday when I finally showed up. We arrived and went to see uh, our our seating for the League of Extraordinary Heroes, which was the one I most wanted to play. And then you found out that it had been canceled because the GM was sick. So we had to find a new campaign. And we ended up doing a D&D 5e Adventurers League, which you had noted just a bit ago, had done on Friday. Uh, and I was leaning towards other stuff before we went because I had, like you, experience under the... Dungeons and Dragons uh, third edition system, but it was like, okay, well, what's available? And there were tons of D and D five E and a lot of them were still looking for, for players. So the campaign, we, we didn't, we made sure we didn't do the same campaign you had already done. We ended up in a campaign called the executioner, which for those interested, the plot in and of itself was there was a local village where an age old relic shows up. It's a farming village. uh, And they're really concerned that it's causing problems. So, we and our merry band of adventurers were to go in and help quell this unrest. So our GM was a man named John Fulmer. John, I think, did a great job. Agreed. He uh, mentioned before and after that the campaign he felt had a lot of problems. And so he'd rewritten portions of it because he didn't think there was adequate motivation to actually get the characters to take action. I could not tell that it was a flawed campaign. So whatever rewrites he did, he did them really well. I also like how he role played all the NPCs. So he had his Russian accents working in full force. And I think he just really helped make it a a lot of fun. And he knew that I was totally green. I hadn't RPG'd in years. So anyway, of the two RPGs that I played on Saturday, this was my favorite. Everyone in the group role played. I believe we were a group of six like you had on the previous day. Yep, six. And uh, everyone was in character. Some of us, my, like myself, didn't were a lot quieter than than others in terms of you know trying to just sort of figure out how to fit in. My my main issue was the my character. I I drew a wood elf light cleric was because uh, I drew I had a, I took a pre generated character because I didn't have one ready to go. Uh, and my problem was my character's descriptor. I wanted to role play it, but he was obsessed with the land, like. I guess like nature, the land, but I kept trying to get that across, but I don't think anyone understood what I was doing because I just kept saying, okay, I will investigate this for the land. I think everyone's like, what is wrong with him? They probably just assumed that I had been hit in the head with a rock. And that was what my motivation was, is I had brain damage. Anyway, so saying that aside, uh, mechanically, the game format played out a lot like I remember D&D playing out. So I was pretty comfortable overall with it. I mean, it didn't take me long once we were in our first combat situation. We didn't have a whole lot of combat. I think I remember uh, essentially four encounters, 3.5 in a way, uh, because of one of them ended up being two encounters because of a decision Tony and I made. But 
overall, I think character man. Yeah, and we, we can hit we can hit in on that, but because overall, I just want to say I, I, it was a really good group. I thought, especially given the fact that we just sort of fell into it, and so falling into such a solid session for my very first experience at Cantcom was a really big positive, and I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, so I guess we should probably you uh, you did win best player. I voted for you. You easily, I thought had it i had it between two of you but but you were far and away because of your commitment to the role-playing performance (laughs) and i just think that that commitment there were there were at least two other people who were pretty good at you know voicing their character and staying in role but your commitment to the ethos of your character just i think pushed it over, and clearly everyone uh, agreed that it just pushed it over so tell us a little bit about that character tone tell us your motivation my motivation. Well, I uh, had decided not to continue my character from the previous day, and I decided, seeing as the previous day my armor wasn't really being all that helpful, but I still kind of wanted to be uh, a melee character and kind of tanky, I went with a barbarian and, you know, just tank with my health. And as I was reading through the pre generated character that I picked up, there were several. Uh, things in his motivations and his background and stuff that jumped out at me. Uh, one of them was that he was an alcoholic, and the other was that he was he he viewed his friends like something that needed to be protected, like pups, and he was literally raised by wolves. Yes, and it was that latter aspect that I think most strongly manifested itself. You did a pretty good job trying to get across that you were an alcoholic. I don't think people picked up on it. Probably uh, not, because while every while we were raiding places and everyone else is stealing stuff, it's like I, I was just stealing all the booze and drinking. So yes, and I <laughs> and I think and and everyone noted it. I just think they thought, oh, barbarian. Kind of, yeah, uh, but but you got it across better than my other my kind of negative trait was supposed to be that I secretly wanted to be a tyrant ruling over the land <laughs> so I could keep the land safe. I never found a place where I I was able to work it in. Uh, if I had been better skilled, I would have. But I don't but know how you would have played that in in the first place. I mean, that's kind of you told me about that that day, and I was trying. I still haven't thought up a good way to try and play something like that in. It's like, oh, by the way, I would like to rule you all. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is maybe if I had tried to usurp the Burgermeister's role uh, and take him out in a coup d'etat on a village I've never lived in, I I couldn't, you know, mentally, I just couldn't. It's like, well, the people would never support that, but I don't care about the people. I care about land. No, it just, I couldn't couldn't make it work. That seemed like something that would show up better in a long-term campaign compared to a... uh, I've got the hiccups all of a sudden. Sorry about that. Compared to a, a short-term campaign, but yeah, no, I went with my barbarian with his eight intelligence, who was actually raised by wolves, and I went as over the top with him as I could. And and, and it was it, it was it was awesome. It was very awesome when one of the main antagonists, as it turned out, in the campaign was wearing a fur hat. It was a wolf's head hat. Yeah, I freaked out. Yes. Because he was wearing my brother. Yes. And so Tony, uh, in character, just starts exclaiming, brother, 
And zany antics thus ensued, uh, going so far as to split the party, which is <laughs> even I, as a total neophyte to this, knew was a terrible idea. Split the I party. knew it was a terrible yes. idea, but I, I played the way I played the character. There was no way that I would not have split the party at that point. Right. And the uh, only difference is I did not expect anybody to stay with me. <laughs> Yes, I I did stay, and the reason was one of my other character traits was once committed to an action, my character didn't like to deviate. So because we had already gone to confront this guy, running back to save a bunch of villagers, my character was a sort of a pure neutral type, so he didn't, you know, that was not a motivation to save the town. He needed to deal with the conflict that he thought was responsible because he'd committed to that course of action. We did end up having to run away because we just couldn't take him. But yeah, it ended up being a white who I physically couldn't damage, which made for what I think might have been one of the most epic scenes of the entire weekend, because I raged into barbarian rage to get me all my big bonuses, plus all my other bonuses. And I attacked him and I rolled a natural 20. It was awesome. And I rolled 33 points of crit damage onto him. It was even more awesome. And he collapsed to the floor and then he smiled and stood up and laughed at me and I told Dennis to run. Yes, that was the not awesome part. And so and so and so run we did. (laughs) <laughs> like scared little little wolf pups uh, but but that i mean it really it it was a lot of fun it the the role playing was great the team was great john did a great job gming it it was it was a blast so oh, I, I really liked it we forgot my first and probably the funniest thing that happened in that entire session <laughs> I tried to intimidate a bunch of guards at the very beginning. Oh, yes. I, yes. I can't believe I forgot about that. And I rolled a natural one. So where we were standing, <laughs> we basically played it that as I start yelling at these guards, are you strong? Are you strong? Snow fell off of the roof of the house and landed on my head because that's the only way I could have failed an intimidation check that horribly badly. <laughs> I still, you know, every, everyone has their own style and it has been even longer since I played that I GM'd, but I would have had your voice crack like you were a, a pubescent dwarf and it would have been, are you strong? That's what I would have done, but it was not my decision to make. Ultimately, the snow was very funny, though. Uh, yeah, that was that, that was yeah. that was good because that was part of my other character's thing is he, he has very much a matter of uh, might makes right and the strong being strong is more important than anything else. Yes. And and you got that across very you got a lot of things. It's like you've done this before. You you got a lot of things across that it's amazing. That didn't need to be spelled out to anyone else. It was all very, very clear. Uh the executioner was actually a two hour campaign that the GM chose deliberately because this was a four hour block and he wants he doesn't like the games to feel rushed. And so he figured, you know, you do a a shorter campaign, but you allow people to go off on their weird RPG tangents. And, and it was, it was a good decision. We went over three hours doing this two hour campaign because of the, not just the split where Tony and I went to face brother killer, uh, but just everything else. Like when we were in the Burgermeister's house and all the exploring and the interaction with the townspeople, all that stuff was really drawn out. And it was nice because we didn't feel rushed because the GM from the get-go goes, it's a two-hour campaign. Don't worry. We're going to get through it in four hours. So yeah, I think I like it, everyone relaxed. Nice. Uh, 
So anyway, that one was really, really good. So then we went, we did have enough time for a break. So we went and got lunch and then we came back and our second game had not been canceled. So that was Dark Tide, which was a play test of the ultimate hero system by uh, Paragon Notion. And we'll include a link to their Facebook in the show notes. Uh, the GMs were Paul Nelson and Jason O'Kane, who, as I understand, are the creators of the game. Uh, we were there for uh, basically a four-hour playtest session. And it's, a, it's a superhero game. So yes, it's yes, not, it's, very different than d d It's not a straight sci-fi or a D&D type. Yeah, it, it was a superhero game, so it was very much in that vein. Uh, in terms of uh, sort of the setting, we it was uh, respond to a distress call on Mars. That's kind of the the motivation, so to speak. Uh, again, it was another, uh, I believe, six person. Was it six or seven? It that was we had? seven. It was seven. Okay, and we're going to comment on that because yeah. that was an issue. Uh, in terms of what we played. My character, uh, my superhero is Achilles. He was a melee-based character that had what I, I would describe as shadow powers. Uh, super old guy, uh, back from the Oliver Cromwell era of Britain, saw the Declaration of Independence be signed. So he had an interesting backstory. And I did try and emphasize that, I thought, relatively well throughout my role-playing. But uh, that was really the only characteristics, besides the combat-oriented stuff that I felt I had to work with. And that was fine for me. I thought that was enough to be able to try and, you know, who doesn't have a time where you have to tell the young whippersnappers that, well, you know, <laughs> when I was with the new model army and we had Charles pinned and we were on the way to London, you know, what could he do? Sort of thing. I didn't actually use that one. I should have though, because I'd be even brushed up when I saw that I immediately brushed up on my uh, British civil war <laughs> as quickly <laughs> as I could. Unfortunately, I think most people weren't familiar with it. So it kind of went nowhere, but I, was, well, I knew I was, about the new model army, but well, you you were a big fan yeah. of history, though. So yeah, my character in this game was a gray, like an alien gray, who had telekinesis and the ability to create things out of air and create airflows and and stuff like that. Who was very small and very short. So I spent the entire game using my telekinesis to hold myself about three foot off the ground so that my actual height was 6'6 six, six instead of 3'6, <laughs> which kind of saved me a couple of times. But it was the exact opposite. I mean, pretty much as opposite as you could get of my Thugosh. That was the name of my barbarian character was Thugosh. Yeah. Is that um, I played her as pacifist and... That didn't last, but I, that's what I was originally going for. But she was a healer, and I did try to work as primarily a support. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, this seemed very different from what I normally associate you in terms of character type selection. Yeah, it's it's far off my norm because I normally either go for you know a big bruiser or a wizard or something. I very rarely go healer or anything that would be more supporty considered. <laughs> So uh, in terms of how the game itself went, I think what I'd like to note is that the GMs, I, they tried really, really hard. But yeah. this, this was rough. This was a rough one for me. Um, and I don't, I don't think it was the campaign. I think the campaign w was an excellent idea. They had all sorts of cool stuff from the, from the one GM, I think it was Jason, putting on his sheriff mustache <laughs> to the recordings. Uh, they had audio recordings that we could be able to listen to to get involved with the. We were doing a very investigative sort of, I call it a Scooby-Doo mystery style uh, campaign, which I really liked that in terms of a setting. It was, it, was, it was a nice setting. I liked the system. 
It I like yeah. the 2D6. It seems very flexible and interesting. And I, I've gone through the book a couple of times, just glancing. I haven't spent much time on it. But I can see where it could be a very flexible and fun system. Yes. Uh, I want to say that I also thought that the system itself, which is what we were playtesting, uh, the 2D6 approach I thought was really good. Back when we were doing the D&D game, I found myself getting confused uh, like which die I needed to grab when I'm constantly referencing the chart because I had three different attacks. They all used a different die type. Plus, I needed my 20 sided die for most of the checks, which, again, it gets a little weird because I was familiar with a lot of that from my old D&D day- days. But had I not known that, I definitely would have found the 2D6 a lot easier because no matter what, I needed to pick up two six sided die. I, that's all you used and you always use two for everything. So, yeah, that I thought was uh <sighs> was a really good. Uh, I thought their character choices were cool. I thought they all felt really distinct. The the heroes you could choose from. They did. And their art, I like, I really enjoyed the art they had, the art they have in the book, the art they had on the character sheets was all really nice. Mm-hmm. And as I noted, I thought that the uh, thought that they put into the construction of the campaign uh, was excellent. We actually had the choice of three different campaigns at the start that you choose sort of in character. And the one we ended up choosing was their original campaign. They added a couple other variants uh, that we could have ended up doing. You know, I don't know if those were as well developed or not. It doesn't really matter. Their their core one that they used originally was, I think, really, really good. Here were the problems that we ran into. You know, without naming names, I'd say, though, of the seven people playing, there were three players that essentially refused to actually role play. Uh, one of those, I thought, was disengaged from the game, at least for the first hour and a half. And then two of the others seemed only interested in doing the combat mechanics, but not actually role playing in the game. So I, f- I found that a little frustrating. Uh, I yeah. think it made it, it made it, it went awkward in a way because it wasn't, everyone wasn't interacting in the way that I had just experienced an hour before in the D and D session. Uh, the game did not start for 45 minutes. A lot of that time was spent explaining how the system worked. So we would be familiar with it, but the whole time I'm glancing at my watch because I'm wondering, are we actually going to be able to get through the campaign? And uh, newsflash, we didn't. A couple other things that I ran into was one was in no way anyone's fault, but I just had trouble hearing some people. Uh, yeah, just that, due to I the noticed, We were in a bad place. The table was in a real bad place. There was a lot of stuff going on around us. I had a lot. Yeah, of we were like in a high people. traffic area. And, yeah, uh, it was hard to hear. Yeah. And so that was really unfortunate. So. Uh, it made things difficult. It added to that roughness I mentioned earlier. And um, the combat just took way too long. Uh, some of that is, I'm sure, due to the fact that we had seven players. But I was just shocked at how long each combat round was taking versus what we saw with the six players in the D&D session earlier. Right. And I think some of that is that some of the people were kept getting up and leaving the table. And some of it was the fact that, I mean, I don't think any of our combats lasted more than two rounds. It's just the rounds took forever. And I think that's, I think that might have been something that if everybody'd had more of a solid grasp on the system, it might have been faster. But I just think seven people is a bit big. And I think that's a con game problem that I've ran into in the past where there's just so many people that half the group is pretty much disconnected. Because you spent so much time waiting. It was happening with me as well. I, in fact, one point, a uh, person to my left uh, was, we. he saw I was checking something out on uh, 
on Craigslist looking at pinball prices for pinball machines on <laughs> Craigslist. And then we start talking about pinball. And because we were still waiting for other people to execute their turn. So we were just, there was nothing else to do. In addition to the uh, the number of players, which I think was probably the big thing, I'd say the difference, the only other difference I could really point to versus the D&D system that could be responsible was under this system, everyone basically got two attacks or two moves in their turn. So yeah. that would that would naturally add length to it. But I think you're right, Tony. I think a lot of it was driven just by unfamiliarity with what the powers did and such. Overall, I think the the system was pretty good. I think I would probably say cap this out with four players, though, not seven. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the holdback here was the player count. It was uh, that, and I had like I said, I had a lot of props hearing. Uh, I enjoyed the system. I enjoyed I the flexibility that my character's power set had with especially for being support and this and that i mean at one point i used my control of air to create a air dome with a vacuum gap when i was doing some medical work on some bodies just to make sure there was no chance of having contamination with anybody else i was doing uh i was creating uh hardened air as shields to protect non-combatants and I mean, I was doing lots of fun stuff. I tried to hold up a collapsing wall with air and rolled a critical failure. And yes, <laughs> and I, this is the point where we should note that uh, Tony once again won best player, and that's how you got the book for the game system. Actually, was that was the prize? This one was harder for me because, as I'd noted before, there were some challenges. There were in some ways it was easier because there were three people that I was not going to vote for because I didn't think they role played, but. There were still other players. There were three others that I would, because I wouldn't consider myself. Uh, there were three others, though, that I thought were worth consideration. But the thing that stood out, and again, I think it stood out for everyone, was it wasn't until that moment in our first combat scenario where Tony rolled his critical fail and crushed one of our own allies into the ceiling and then, without a care in the world, cut off his air support and drop him to the floor <laughs> that people finally loosened up. Up until then, I think it felt really clunky and awkward. Not the not the campaign, not the mechanics, just the interaction with the group. And the group never got to the D&D group that we had in terms of the inter interaction with everyone. But that was like the breaking point where it went from really awkward to functional. <laughs> and uh, and so then the other the other players like, hey, what's going on? And then he you know, starts like, I'm pointing all my attacks at Tony to make sure that if I critically fail, he which ultimately did end up happening. Yeah. And so that I, I just it was uh, it was a good breath of fresh air. We had already been going for about 90 minutes at that point, not 90 minutes of play, 90 minutes since the thing started. So we actually had only been in game for about 45 minutes but i think it was a big deal just in terms of finally it seemed a lot of people loosened up and it was just going it was going better at that point yeah i think like you said i don't think that group ever gelled completely i think uh, the three or four of us gelled together real well the rest just never really settled in i think that had a lot to do with the overall feel of everything yeah. And we, I mean, there were people waiting uh, when it was getting close to time to stop. So we really just had to kind of cut it off at the end of the combat we were at. So we didn't get to, you know, finish the, my sense was the way things were going. We probably had one more major combat encounter. I think we were relatively close to the end. We were but. close. We were, we were pretty close. He said there was only one bit of thing left. But. Okay. But it was unfortunate that we were, we were unable to, but 
uh, it was just, it was taking so long. I mean, the investigation stuff took a while at first in the game. I, I really liked that, but the, yeah, those combat rounds were just so long that unfortunately, given we didn't start until it was a, you know, 45 minutes in before we actually got on our spaceship to go to Mars, it just, we, the odds were stacked against us to get, getting through a campaign that had that much depth to it. Yeah. But <clears throat> I think the That's system a- has a lot of potential. I sure wouldn't mind playing in this system again. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I've actually already got an idea. Yet another one of my ideas for a a game dun, that dun, dun. I'm looking at. I, I I have general ideas, and I need to look through the book and see if I can actually create some of the stuff I've been thinking about. I don't see why I couldn't, based upon the flexibility of the system. Yes, but it is very flexible. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. And I can say that while that was probably the least of uh, my least favorite of the games i've played it's far from the worst con game i've ever played it could have been better and i don't blame the game itself or the gms or anything i think that was that was all solid i think just the fact that the group never meshed and so many people didn't really rp i think that's the only thing that hurt it yeah i don't i mean the only thing i could really think of that the gms could have done would have been to uh use a lower cap on the player count yeah just give it or or because the only other thing would be to take another a shorter campaign that's about the you could do it either way i would have rather it just been fewer players but that's easy for me to say because i felt i didn't mesh with several of them so right and and i mean i've had that issue in games before and i've (laughs) i've had games before that were just so insanely terrible that when it was over, you're just like, oh, finally, I can leave. <laughs> uh, and I don't think this game was that bad because I actually, <clears throat> in this case, I enjoyed this system and I enjoyed the setting. And so that was fine. But I think it was a pretty successful weekend all in all. Yeah. Um, I played last year. I went to three games. I played three games Friday, three, three, four hour games Friday, three, four hour games on Saturday. And that was a lot, and I did not do that this year. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that I didn't play so many games this year. But at the same time, I still kind of wanted to play more games. It was just one of those things. It's like, okay, I am tired, so I don't know. Maybe, I'll, maybe I'll consider going on a Sunday next year. Normally, I stay home on Sundays. I'll do Friday and Saturday, then I'll stay home Sunday to have time with the family. But we'll see. That's next year's a year away. Yeah, you got you got time to evaluate it. Okay, well, that gets us through the entire episode of content. So everyone, thank you again for listening. If you want to reach out to us here at the Eclectic Gamers Podcast, you can email us. The email address is eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. We also have a pretty active Facebook page, which can be found at facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast. We have a not-so-active Twitter account. It's at eclectic underscore gamers. And a more uh, active Instagram account that's the same. It's eclectic underscore gamers. I find that I use the Instagram to keep things updated more often than the Twitter. And that's fine. We, We like you just the way you are. So everything should be continuing on schedule as we tend to stick. So I imagine we will be back around on or just a day before or after August 14th to give you the next episode. But until then, have fun. Bye.